you. So in honor of Super Bowl Sunday and its history of wardrobe malfunctions, I just want to point out I normally don't wear a nice outfit with a fanny pack on the back. So just, I needed it to secure the microphone. Um, anyway, I want to begin with just a little fun interaction because our subject today is not really a fun subject, but let's begin with something a little fun. So we're going to start off by showing some pictures, and I just want people to shout out, what emotion do you see expressed on this person's face? Okay, next one. Uh-huh, sad. Next one. Scared. Frustrated, right? And finally, what's that? Yes, angry, right? Angry, mad, just enraged. So... Congratulations, you got them all right. I think that was fairly easy, right? Now I'm going to give you one that's much harder. So put up these pictures, Walter. Okay, so of these two people, which one is harboring anger and hatred in their hearts? Can you tell? We don't know, right? And so that's really what we're going to be looking at today that one of these people, I'm just surmising, maybe has, is harboring anger or hatred towards somebody in their heart. We don't know, but God knows, right? And Jesus is going to address this discrepancy that can happen in our life where our outward appearance could look just fine, but inside we are really struggling with anger. Now here's a definition of anger. is a strong emotion or irritation, of irritation or agitation that occurs when a need or expectation is not met. Now, in honesty, I don't even think we need to define anger. I think we're all pretty aware of what anger is because we regularly display it, most likely, and we regularly are the recipients of somebody's anger. And as you know, anger can have a whole range of emotions. Just like you have a flame, right, and it goes from red to orange to yellow and then blue on the inside, anger can range all the way from mild irritation all the way up to uncontrollable eruptions, right? Synonyms of anger include indignation, wrath, rage, fury, depending on the degree of anger. And I think we all know how destructive anger can be. So we have a passage today of six verses. Right now we're going to focus on the first two and spend the majority of our time on this. So let's read that together. This is in Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. And this is from the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been following, um, doing a series on the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in the danger of the fire of hell. That's pretty incredible, actually. Jesus is basically saying that our anger can turn into hatred and murder. That's how powerful anger, anger can be. So we're going to take a few minutes to just walk our way through these verses, what the original intent of the author was, who was Matthew, one of the disciples, and then we'll see how we can apply that to our lives. So in the beginning it says, you have heard. So Jesus was referring to the teaching of the various Jewish leaders. So he was questioning their interpretation of the law. He wasn't questioning the law itself. As we heard last week from Brian, that Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law, right? He came to complete the law, the, the laws that already existed. So in this case, he took that, the law they had in the Old Testament, do not murder, and he expanded that. And he said, well, let's check the attitudes and motivations in your heart. 
And what are you harboring and fostering in there? And then we go to the next phrase. Uh, well, further on, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders would be subject to judgment. But then it says, but anyone who is angry with a brother or sister. So this phrase, brother or sister, is a Greek word that Matthew uses frequently throughout his gospel, and it basically means fellow believer. So this isn't just a generic type of anger, but Jesus is particularly zeroing in on the anger and contempt that we can have for fellow believers, which is really sad if you think about it. Now, if you look, if you have your Bibles open, it may have a footnote. Some of them says, whoever is angry with a brother or sister without cause. Some of the later Greek manuscripts have that phrase. Scholars believe that this was added to give clarification, to point out that there is such a thing as anger with a godly cause, or righteous anger, but there's also anger that is without cause. It is unjustifiable. So this is interesting. As I was studying this, I found out this passage, these two verses, parallels, parallels Mosaic law. And in Mosaic law, it prescribes what should happen if somebody commits murder, actual physical murder. And first, there is judgment by, a local, by local representatives, so it refers to judgment in our passage. If this was re- disregarded, then matter was presented to the council, and in our passage it says answerable to the court. And finally, if the council's de- decree was also ignored, then the judgment of God was sought, sort of like calling down God's wrath on the guilty. So this was directly referring back to the laws in the Old Testament. And this progression, it, it's really curious. It, uh, the commentators I read says it really points back to this awful, awful story at the end of the book of Judges. If anyone's familiar with it, it really is an awful story. I don't have time to explain the whole story. But the last three chapters in Judges, Judges 19 through 21, talk about this man who has a concubine, and how um, they went to the city, and this concubine was raped and killed by men from the tribe of Benjamin. They were living in the city of Gibeah, and she was raped and killed by these men. Um, And so you see the progression of judgment. The men of Gibeah first ignored the local authority, which was the Levite. The, The husband was actually a Levite. Then they ignored the council of Israel who passed judgment on the, the, Benj- the Benjamites. So all the, the council, all the other tribes came together and they passed judgment on the Benjamites, but nothing happened. Finally, it says they were given over to judgment. And what happened was thousands of their men were killed and their cities were burned. And so you see in our passage, they would be in danger of the fire of hell. So if you want to do a little light reading, you can go and read Judges 19 through 21. But this is really... Uh, really echoes back to that story. But what does that have to say for us today? So basically, um, we went from having harboring anger in our heart, that's internal, and then it progresses to verbal. And it says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Raka is actually an Aramaic term. Occasionally, most of the New Testament's in Greek, but you occasionally have some uh, Aramaic mixed in there. Raka was actually an insult, meaning someone's empty-headed, shallow, stupid, or we would say idiot. It's used pridefully to convey scorn and contempt for someone they thought was beneath them. So that was what Raka meant. But now it says, anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Fool actually sounds very similar to what I said Raka meant, right? But it's actually a much worse condemnation. And if you see in our passage, it says, if you say fool, you'll be in danger of the fire of hell. The word hell there is actually the word Gehenna. And that's the name of the place around Jerusalem where they used to sacrifice, make human sacrifices. And it was the place at that time where trash was burned. 
So the word fool, when it was said in anger like that, it was basically you were saying, this person is so completely and utterly worthless that they deserve to, to die. That's basically what you were saying. They are so bad they should be burned to death in Gehenna or hell. We might, and in today's terminology, we might call them, that person's a total degenerate. We might say something like that. It's basically character assassination, destroying someone's reputation, and that person becomes the object of hatred. So you can see just the, the difference between Raka and you fool. So we see the progression of internal anger to verbal insults to the total disparaging of someone's character and worth. And again, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to look at the intent of things, not just someone's actions. So you may say to yourself, well, gee, I guess I'll never use the word fool again, right? <laughs> um, but here's the funny thing. It's not always wrong to call somebody a fool. Jesus actually did this. <laughs> so again, you have to look at the reason behind you're calling somebody a fool. So if you look at Psalm 14, verse 1, and you'll see here that God actually calls uh, atheist a fool. He says, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. And Jesus takes on the same meaning in the New Testament. When someone is denying or even opposing the existence of God and his ways or rejects him, Jesus calls them a fool. Here's just two examples. You know the man who just, um, he was really successful agriculturally, he just kept building bigger and bigger barns, and he built this really big barn, and then he died, right? And Jesus said, what a fool. And then there's another example where the man who built his house on the sand, right? And Jesus called him a fool. So going back to our, the whole thing of intent, it's not wrong necessarily to say fool. Um, it sometimes accurately describes the state of somebody who is in rebellion against God. But it's the intent behind it. So just a quick question to ask yourself. Do we call someone a fool in the biblical sense, whether out loud or in our hearts, because we're saddened by the rejection of God and we have such concern for them? Or, I'm guessing most of us call someone a fool, whether out loud or in our hearts again, because we foster hatred and murder towards them for how they have wronged us or how they have hurt someone we love. So, unfortunately, we, do, we probably more often than not do not use the word fool in the way that Jesus did. I really like how William Barclay's commentary summarizes this portion of our passage. And here he says, while Jesus is saying here, what Jesus is saying here is this, in the old days men condemned murder, and truly murder is forever wrong. But I tell you that not only are a man's outward actions under judgment, his inmost thoughts are also under the scrutiny and the judgment of God. Long-lasting anger is bad, which is our passage, angry without cause. Contemptuous speaking is worse, referring to Raka or idiot. And the careless or malicious talk which destroys a man's good name is worst of all, which is saying you fool. The man who is a slave of anger, the man who speaks in the accent of contempt, the man who destroys another's good name may never have committed a murder in action, but he is a murderer in heart. 1 John 3.15 picks up on this, says it much more clearly. It says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So again, if we're honest, I'm guessing most of us have called someone a fool in our hearts or even out loud. We probably completely dismiss them. We devalue them. We think they're worthless. They're not worth our time. 
But we can put on a good show, right? Like those two pictures in the beginning, I said, which one is harboring hate? You, you don't know, looking at somebody. We can mask that. But Jesus knows. God knows the intent of our heart. So I just want to give an example. And I have to say, <laughs> this is a very humbling message to give because I have all sorts of examples <laughs> of how I have failed in the area of anger. Um, but this whole harboring anger um, in your heart, I, I have, a, unfortunately, a very good example of that in my own life. Um, for those of you who know, I had a sister named Andrea. She passed away about three years ago from breast cancer. Um, her husband, is like, as, as her disease progressed, he was more and more uncaring toward her to the point where sometimes he would abuse her, you know, verbally or otherwise. He would be absent and not help her when she went to chemotherapy. It was just, it was awful. To the point where she finally decided, I can't live like this in my remaining time that God has for me. She moved out, and she eventually moved in with us. So I just, it just, this anger toward my brother-in-law just built up in my heart. And then I'd see something online, and he would post something like some sort of spiritual thing. And I'm like, oh my God, you got to be kidding me. And I would just scoff at it. And it was eating me up on the inside to the point where I'm like, i got to unfollow him on Facebook. Because every time I see it, it just... It stirs it up, and it made it worse. And I knew that God was calling me to surrender this to him, and it was a process. It wasn't a one-time thing. Um, and just a reminder that it wasn't for me to take revenge on what he had done to my sister or hadn't done. And when my sister was alive, I told her often, when we would get into discussions about her husband, like, you know, one day God's going to make this right, and we need to trust God to do that. And now, now that she's gone, I still sometimes have to tell myself that. But the thing I want to point out is I don't want to match his ugliness with an ugliness of my own, right? And that, that was developing, and I really had to surrender that to God. So I don't know if you have circumstances like that, but it, it's not worth holding on to. So when I was preparing for this message, um, I like to listen to, to different um, people that I esteem and listen to their sermons on a particular topic. So there's one that just really stood out and spoke a lot to me, and that was um, a sermon by Tim Keller. Um, it's called The Healing of Anger. And so some of these ideas come from him, so I want to give credit to that. Um, but he basically characterizes anger in three words. Um, the first one is what he called no anger. And this is basically, we deny we're angry, right? But... Even though we deny it, it doesn't mean it's not there, right? It's usually just pressed down. We seem, it's so funny in life. We can admit all sorts of emotions, right? We can say, oh, I'm sad, I'm lonely, I'm scared. But when it comes to anger, we're like, no, I'm not angry, right? <laughs> and it's usually just a fear of facing the real problem. We might say, I'm not angry, I'm just sticking up for myself. I'm just getting something off my chest. I'm just trying to get justice. I'm just telling it like it is, Right? And it's a pride, really, to say, it's like you talk to another person, you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm not angry with you, and then you ignore them, and you kind of do the passive-aggressive thing. And that's really, you're putting yourself above them. This is really just a pressure cooker situation where anger can build up over time if, if you're like this and you keep suppressing it, and it can lead to murder in the heart. Ephesians 4.31 says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger brawling and slander along with every form of malice. And you can't get rid of something that you're not admitting. So you first need to admit that, yes, I struggle with anger, just like you admit the other emotions. The second thing is, so Tim Keller says you can have no anger, 
what he calls no anger, or you can have blow anger. So blow anger is this kind of this anger that blows up and it's kind of uncontrollable and it's expressed. And I also use this, um, this Bible study book dealing with anger that helped me categorize different types of anger. But in there it talked about prolonged anger, like a simmering stew. So this is anger that is nursed in a heart for a long time. And it's the result of an unforgiving heart toward a past offense and an offender. And over time it can lead to resentment and bitterness with the ever-present uh, threat of maybe one day it's just going to explode, kind of like the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Just one small thing can finally release this pressure cooker. In Hebrews 12, 15, it says, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. So I, in my own life, I have an example of this one, too, um, where I've, I just allow just slowly um, getting kind of angry and bitter toward my siblings, because as a lot of you know, I've had a lot of time and effort taking care of my mother the last few years. And I felt very lonely in doing that, apart from my husband and family helping me. Um, and it's, it was a, almost a daily struggle for me, like, why aren't they doing more? Why aren't they offering their help? Or when they do help, why is it, does it feel like it's, a, it's coerced and not genuine? And it, it's really hard. I, I'm still growing in that, but I've learned to let a lot of that go because I don't want that root of bitterness to grow up. Second type of blow anger is provoked anger. This is anger with a short fuse. Anyone here have a short fuse? <laughs> I can be quick-tempered. I can be easily irritated. So Ecclesiastes 7.9 says, Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Okay, here's another great example from my life. Um, so there are times when I'd be in my bedroom having a quiet time, and it's going wonderful. I feel like I'm really communing with God. And then when my kids just burst in and blah, 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 and I'm just like, Can't you see I'm having a quiet time with God? <laughs> So I, how I go for instantly from being at peace and feeling like I'm really connecting with God to just like crazy angry, like so silly. So that's an example of being a short fuse, provoked anger. The third one, profuse anger, is like a volatile volcano. It is powerful, destructive, and hard to control. This type of anger is a blazing anger that actually like destroys common sense, resulting in a loss of self-control, sometimes violence, and for someone who displays this kind of volatile anger is someone who basically, when they're, when they're finally calmed down, they look back on it and they say, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. Have, have anyone here had that experience? You're like, where in the world did that come from? Anger is such an intense emotion that it actually produces extra adrenaline, which can make it easy for us to turn and be destructive. So the verse I have up there, um, the context is, uh, Peter was preaching in the temple, and the, the Jewish leaders didn't like that. So Acts 5.33 says, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. So their anger immediately went to, oh, I want to kill them, right? So that's like the volatile volcano anger. So then you have to say, well, what is the antidote that Jesus is referring to? So it's not no anger, like denied anger, or it's not blow anger, but it's slow anger, and this is the thing that really struck with me. Slow anger is anger God's way. God's anger is always slow anger with a righteous cause. And, and listen to what Tim Keller said. He said, the Bible doesn't just say anger is a destructive force. It says some astoundingly positive things about anger. What? Positive things about anger? He said, being slow to anger is actually a good thing. I was so struck by this thought 
because I always feel like I'm trying to get rid of anger in my life, but he's saying, no, anger can be a positive thing if used without sin. So Proverbs 16.32, he used this verse as a support. He said, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules the spirit than he who captures a city. Ephesians 4.26, and I have the NASB translation up there, says, be angry and yet do not sin. And it's actually an imperative in the Greek. An imperative is like a command. Be angry, but do not sin. I'm like, what? It's just really messed with my head, studying this. So basically, you should be angry at times, but not sin in that anger. Often we need to get justifiably angry to remedy a bad situation or to spur us on to action. Another theologian put it this way, Paul is placing a moral obligation on believers to be as angry as the situation requires. So being slow to anger is actually an attribute of God. This was really interesting. So the Bible says God is slow to anger many times. You can probably, you know, those who've read the, New, the Old Testament somewhat frequently understand, there's many times it says God is slow to anger. Here's just one example. When Moses was on Mount Sinai and God was giving him the Ten Commandments for the second time, God identifies himself like this. He said, uh, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. So how many times do we say these attributes of God? He's compassionate, he's gracious, he's full of love, he's faithful. We say all that, right? Do we go around and say, he's slow to anger? Usually not. But it, and note that it doesn't say he's without anger. He says he's slow to anger. And that is how we need to be too. So I want to read this quote from Tim Keller. I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I'm going to actually put it up again a little later in my message in case you're trying to write it down. You'll have a second opportunity to. But Tim Keller says, true love always gets angered. Pure anger, anger in its uncorrupted origin, is just love moved to deal with the threat to someone you love. Anger is love in motion when someone or something that you love is under threat. I thought that was really profound. So if you say you have no anger, I mean, if you truly have no anger, then I wonder if you care or love anything. Because you should feel anger when something you love is threatened. Here's another fella, although this, this is from about 1,600 years ago, John Christostom. This is what he says on the issue. He that is angry without cause sins. That's what we get from our passage in Matthew today. He is angry without cause sins. But he who is not angry when there is cause sins. For unreasonable patience is a hotbed of many vices. Isn't that crazy? He basically says, if you are indifferent, then you don't really love. That's pretty powerful. Now, don't get the wrong idea. Much of our anger is not this, right? So we see two types of anger in Scripture now. One that is justifiable righteous anger, like God's anger, his slow to anger. And one that is without cause, as mentioned in our passage. The one that Jesus is pointing to is anger that is exaggerated, self-centered, prideful, and it leads to hate and murder in our hearts. Now, God often speaks, uh, sorry, the Bible often speaks of God's anger. Just read through the Old Testament. You'll see many, many instances of God getting angry. Because why? Because he loves us so deeply. He cares for his children so preciously. And he is justifiably angry that anything that's going to threaten or break those person's relationship with him. And in the Gospels, you see, this is why Jesus is angry. Here's three, three examples. Jesus got angry at the money changers in the temple. Why? Because 
they, <coughs> the people were in threat of departing from the true worship of God. He got angry at the Pharisees, even to the point where he called them hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, and even the brood of vipers. <laughs> Pretty powerful. Why did he do this? Because the, the teaching of the Pharisees were leading people astray from a correct understanding of how they could be in relationship with God. And he got angry at the disciples. You remember this? Why? Because they were threatening children from coming to Jesus, right? <laughs> so they are all examples of Jesus being justifiably angry. So going back to our verse, I mean, our, our uh, quote from Tim Keller, true love always gets angered. Pure anger, anger in its uncorrupted origin, is just love moved to deal with a threat to someone you love. Anger is love emotion when someone or something that you love is under threat. Now, the, here's the difference there. The Bible says Jesus is perfect without sin, right? So he is able to have justifiable anger and not sin. And the irony is we actually are capable of that too. In Ephesians 4.26, as I read earlier, in your anger do not sin. So it shows that we are capable of righteous anger and using it without sin. But here's the rub, right? We're sinful people, right? So while God is able to do that consistently, 100% of the time have anger and only justifiable anger, we are different because we are capable of sinning. So we're kind of, we kind of have these three categories for us. Like, so we can have anger without cause, like we saw in our passage. We can have justifiable anger and not sin in that, as Ephesians tells us. Or we could have justifiable anger that just goes completely wrong, right? So if we are honest, I believe we would all have to admit we have failed many times over in our anger, whether it was justified or not. And you know what? That's where the gospel comes in. If you're feeling pretty convicted right now and have never experienced the saving forgiveness of God's love, just listen up here. So I want to briefly share the good news of the gospel. In Romans 6.23, it says, The wages of sin is death. God is justifiably angry toward us, his people, who have rebelled and sinned against him. We have chosen our own way. This is sometimes called God's wrath in scripture. So as a result, we deserve death and eternal separation from him. But, the rest of the verse says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because God is slow to anger, he's so patient, forever offering you the chance to turn to him in saving faith, 2 Peter 3.9 puts it this way, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some are understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So as long as you are alive, you can experience God's slow-to-anger attribute. And he is waiting for you to return to him and repent and ask for forgiveness. So right now, I think we all need a bit of a two-minute intermission. So I'm going to be playing a video. And while, while it's playing, think about how this kind of speaks to anger. Thanks. Oh, I'm not sure how well you could hear that. The, the sound was a little low in that video. But I love what the broadcaster said. He became a victim, and then his training kicked in. It went on to another video. I'd speed chase. Somebody's angry. That's okay. Okay, so the, I love what the broadcaster said. He became a victim. Oh, seriously? Is it gone? Yeah. And then his training kicked in. 
So I think we can all relate to anger kind of being correlated with explosions, right? Was that not completely dramatic? Um, and our explosions can lead to broken relationships, right? I thought the interesting thing was the police officer prioritized the well-being of the other person. He very easily could have run away and stayed away, right? That's probably what I would have done. But this is God's way for us, right? He set us, you set aside your own self-interest, and you seek to meet the other's need, even in angry situations. The good news is the Bible gives us lots of information on how we can be trained, too. The officer was trained to respond to something like this, and we can be trained as Christians on how to respond to anger. And we need to let our training as Christians kick in. So here are just some steps. They're, they're not nowhere, they're not like totally exclusive. There's plenty more you could add to this. But these are just some things to kind of boil it down to think about today. First of all, be gracious with yourself. We are humans with certain physiological responses, right? When, when we're surprised or, or we're suddenly angered, we can have a fight or flight, right? That's just a physiological thing. Thank God the man in, in the video had that flight, I'm going to run away, self-preservation instinct. This was a natural response, and thank goodness it was for him, right? But sometimes we can be surprised by something, and all of a sudden we can just feel angered, kind of like when my kids burst into my bedroom, right? And we can initially react poorly. Um, and this can be almost like a knee-jerk reaction. You don't even think about it. You're like, oh. And like, and a second later, you're, you're like, oh, I can't, you know, I can't believe I reacted that way. Just be gracious with yourself, but don't get stuck there. The key is, okay, what are you going to do after that initial knee-jerk response, right? Are you going to allow your training to kick in and go back and help, do whatever you can, or are you just going to add fuel to the fire at that point? Second thing you can keep in mind is to pray for discernment. I don't think we need to react or respond every time we have an angry feeling, right? There are times when God calls us to overlook something, to overlook an offense. Proverbs 19.11 says, A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. And uh, we actually quote this quite often to our children at home when they irritate each other in the car or at the dinner table. We're like, it's to a man's glory to overlook an offense. And that really is true sometimes. You don't need to deal, make everything an issue, Right? So we really need discernment to know when we should overlook something that angers us and when we truly need to address it. James 1.5 points us in a direction. How can we have that discernment? If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. And God will let you know, is this something I should just overlook and keep my mouth shut, or is it something I need to address? So then as we move forward, if God is leading you to address the issue... Then what I have is number three is take time to gather the facts. And this helps us not to make a whole bunch of negative assumptions, helps us not to feed our anger, but gather the facts. So I have to be honest, if I saw that video and I was at the gas station, my first thought would be, oh my gosh, is is this guy drunk? Like, you know, you would make all these negative assumptions about the guy who ran into the pump, right? And I would have been way off base. Turns out the driver was in a diabetic shock. And I would have had the facts wrong, which would have fueled my anger unnecessarily. So it's easy to make a lot of assumptions when we're angry. And why is that? Because I said earlier, we're not thinking clearly, right? This is another reason why being slow to anger is so wise. With time, we can learn information that informs our anger, facts that can even diffuse our anger. And when we take the time to ask questions of the person we're angry with, we can get at the true root of the problem. So I have to tell this crazy story this was not intended to be my message, but l- almost to the, to the minute, two days ago, I was at Aldi parking lot, and I, you know, Aldi, you got to bring your shopping bags in, right? 
I pulled into the spot, I turned my car off, got my quarter, <laughs> popped the hatch on my minivan, I walked to the back of my minivan to lean over, like this, this is my van here, to get my bags out. And I heard this sound behind me, and I turned and looked, and this car came speeding into the parking lot, hit a car about 30 feet away from me, kind of spun the car a bit, kept going, went over a curb, up a curb, and was heading straight for my car. Like, literally, I'm, I, I'm just like, I hear a crash. I'm like, <gasps> I screamed, and I just, I ran, and, like, I just got out of the way, maybe a second to spare, and he crashed full force into my back of my van. And I'm like, is this ironic or what? <laughs> With this video I just showed, it's almost the exact same scenario I'm feeling. <laughs> I was like, it was so traumatic. Um, but it was, it was just, just so crazy. And my first thought was, what in the world? What's this guy doing? Is he drunk? I was like getting all angry in my anxiety. And then I remembered the video and my message. <laughs> So after my normal physiological response of running and shaking and all that stuff, I remembered, no way, i got to be slow to anger and get the facts. So I went over, I approached the driver, it turned out to be an elderly man who we believe had some sort of medical issue. I think his foot was on the accelerator the whole time. He, he hit my car full impact, he moved at three feet and it was already turned off. I mean, that's... Um, so I went over and I'm like, are, are you okay? And I was able to have the you know, to set my anger, initial anger style, are you okay? What happened? Well, why were you going so fast? And I was able to ask intelligent questions and gather the facts. Sorry, now I'm shaking still. <laughs> this is crazy. Um, <clears throat> so number four is analyze your anger. Why does something bother me so much? Our goal should be to look beyond the external anger and really see what's underneath. And the interesting thing about anger is it's really called a secondary emotion. There's, usually, there's something that you're feeling first, which leads to you feeling angry. So you have to say, what is underneath my anger? Am I angry because I feel hurt or overlooked? Am I angry because I've been treated unfairly? Am I angry because I fear that if I, don't, if I don't act angry, they won't take me seriously? In other words, is my anger more about me and my feelings, or is it more about what's truly going on? So this is a really important step. When we analyze our anger, we can decide, is this anger without cause that Jesus is cautioning against? Or is it justifiable anger that we can address with his help? Number five is respond gently. Gather the facts. Gathering the facts and analyzing the reason behind our anger helps us to be gentle in our response when we confront somebody. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. What a difference it has made in my life and, frankly, the lives of those around me when I respond gently. This is not something that comes easy for me and something I'm working on, but I can say that when I have responded gently, it has gone much better. Number six, the last point here, is prioritize the best interests of the other. So when we're in this angry confrontation type thing, we need to remember what's best for that other person. Proverbs 25, 21 says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. And I'm going to quote Tim Keller again from a sermon. It says, this is beyond self-control, beyond any wisdom literature at the time, which all reference self-control. This is not just saying, oh, don't take revenge on your enemies. This is saying to do the opposite, to bless and redeem your enemy. This applies to those you're angry with. How can you bless them and redeem the situation? Like in our video, the hero, he set aside his own personal rights and safety, and he, man, gosh, he went back to the fire and dragged the man out. His own car had ammunition in it, and it ended up catching on fire. It was just, just insane. So you want to say, what can I do in this situation to really help? 
And Tim Keller used this term, surgical strike. So he cautions his listeners, target the problem and not the person in an angry situation. It's kind of like cancer treatments. You ever hear of targeted therapy? You probably hear it on commercials on TV, right? Or precision medicines. That's when instead of giving chemotherapy and trying to kill all the good and bad cells together, they try to target just the cancer cells, right? And make an impact on them. So we can, we can kind of do the, kind of the general chemotherapy approach. Well, we're just going to hit everything and hope something good will come out of that. But he was re reminding us that the person you're dealing with is a child of God. They may be blind to their, to their sin, and you need to talk to them gently. And he, he used this phrase with stuff. You need to learn to absorb their anger without paying back and use wisdom on how to target the real issue. So now, just briefly, very briefly, we're going to look at the second half of our passage. This is Matthew 5, 25 to 26. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. In our culture, we might call this settling out of court, right? <laughs> so again, while we don't have time to look through e uh, each nuance of these verses, I just want to have three principles of reconciliation we can draw from this. First is God prioritizes reconciliation between people. God wants all of us to be reconciled with him, right? So we often talk about being reconciled with God, being in right relationship with him. But he also calls us to be in right relationship with others. Reconciliation is so important to God that he prioritizes it even over worship of him. As you see in this passage, the order was what? First reconcile, then come back and offer your gift and worship me. And this is another brother-sister passage. They're really talking about fellow believers here. If you know that somebody has something against you, particularly in the community of faith, you need to go back and make it right. And why is this so important? Because John 13, 34 to 35 says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So we can ruin our testimony. And we can make a mockery, really, of our worship of God if we are not in right relationship, particularly with a fellow believer. Second principle of reconciliation is the timing is really important. Jesus does not want conflict to linger between people. In verse 25, he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary, right? And let's go back to Ephesians 4.26, because we only quoted the first half of that verse earlier on. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry yet do not sin. But the remainder of the verse says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. So Jesus says, handle it quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So don't hold grudges, don't delay resolving conflict, because you never know what life will bring, and you never know when reconciliation will actually become impossible. Real quick example of this, when my mother, um, well, she, when she came to live with us, it was because her husband died suddenly. Well, at the time her husband died, she had been angry with him for three weeks straight, and she ignored him, and she treated him really poorly, and then he died. So she had to live with the fact that he died suddenly, and she was never able to resolve that with him. And that was a really heavy thing for her to work through. So don't delay. It's so important 
Three, be proactive to resolve conflict. Romans 12, 17, 18 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, and not always is, but if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Matthew 5, 9, that we looked at a couple weeks ago, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. So just a little play on words. We're called to be peacemakers, right? We're called to go and bring about reconciliation. We're not called to be peace fakers. Who's good at being a peace faker? I used to be. I'm getting better at not being that. We fake. Oh, yeah, everything's good. And inside you're like, ooh, right? We're not called to be peace fakers. We're not called to be peace takers, where we, we enter a situation and we just stir things up. We're called to be peacemakers. An example I have of this in my own life an unnamed person in my extended family sent an email to several of us a couple years ago after the holidays, blasting us, blasting us for how he thought we did this or that or whatever. And it was so hurtful and so painful, and I, we immediately wanted to respond and make things right. Um, but he wouldn't answer phone, email, nothing. Completely shut off. And it was agony. It was literally agony. But I, had to, I kept pursuing it, pursuing it. And after five months, we were able to finally talk and work things out, clear up some misunderstandings. And it was just awful. But being right with someone is worth the effort. As awful as it is to go through the process, the result is worth the effort. Now, remember our video when the police officer ran toward the explosion? As believers, we've been trained to handle conflict. And how is that? We have God's Holy Spirit living in us. We have the wisdom of God's word at our fingertips, Right? So Jesus is calling us as believers to be the bigger person, not just to sit and wait on them, but to pursue them. That's what this passage talks about, pursuing them. Resolving conflict is costly, but not resolving conflict is actually more costly. Now just keep in mind, sadly, reconciliation doesn't always come to a positive end, especially when you're dealing with non-believers. Our passage talks about your adversary. Remember that non-believers do not have God's spirit in them, so it may not go the way that you would hope, However, we are commanded by Jesus to pursue peace and in obedience. We need to do what we can as much as it is possible. So in conclusion, the entire passage, if you look at now, you go from 21 down to 26, Jesus basically saying take healthy relationships really seriously. It's not just enough to not murder somebody in your heart. But conversely, he wants you to pursue healthy relationships and to seek reconciliation with believers and all others. Why? so that grace and mercy will triumph over the judgment that would surely, surely follow. So for Jesus, it's all about the heart. This is where all our emotions, thoughts, words, and behaviors originate. Evaluate where your heart is with regard to Jesus today. Are there things you are harboring in your heart which are slowly heading down the path of hatred and murder? Or is your heart fully surrendered to him in every area of your life? You know, I'm so thankful Jesus is patient and slow to anger. He's waiting for you to return, to turn to him and repent of, of any of your part in conflicts, and he's waiting to help you resolve conflict. So let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your grace and mercy that you extend toward us, toward us sinners who have rebelled against you, toward, your, toward people who have been fools, who have chosen our own way, Lord. Thank you that you didn't leave us in that foolishness, but you reached down, you offered us forgiveness, and you saved us, and you've given us tools, Lord, that we can live differently, 
we can shine our lights, as we talked about, so that we, people would look at us. They can look at our lives and say, hey, look at how that person handled that angry situation. Or look at how they apologized for being angry. Whatever it is, Lord, we want to shine our light, our testimony for you. Thank you that you work deep in our hearts, that you are slow to anger. Help us to be slow to anger with others and to mimic that to other people. In your name I pray. Amen.